I'd like to open up to actually the book of John, uh, starting in chapter 14. That might be a good place if you want to be able to look at your version. And uh, there will be a handful of scriptures on the screen. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you a little bit about my upbringing. As, as most of you probably know, I grew up in California um, and uh, grew up in very conservative church, not unlike our church. Um, about the same size. We, and, and in saying conservative, we believed highly in the Word of God. The pastors that, and the teachers in those churches revered the Word of God, and they also revered missions. And so in these churches, I, I grew up loving, growing to love reading and studying the Word of God and understanding how it, um, how it impacted my life and recognizing how that impact should be played out in the world, how that impact should be um, lived out. And really, so those churches awakened in me a love for God's Word and a love for missions, a love for the world. And so throughout my teenage and college years, I was given several opportunities to go on short-term mission trips, one to Papua New Guinea, one to Venezuela, and one to Chile. And uh, the, the two trips to Venezuela and Chile were with, were with a group of Christians that was far different than the group that I grew up with. And let me, let me just kind of give you a feel of what this was like. These groups that I went to Venezuela and Chile with, they had a revere for God's word. They loved God's word and they wanted to proclaim it. They had a love for missions and they wanted to take people overseas. And of course, that's why we were there. But let me, let me paint this picture for you. In 1989, I found myself in Miami, Florida. That's where they everybody fly into. We were getting ready to go overseas and we were doing three or four days of training because we were doing a drama in all these different countries. We had to learn to act out the drama. So we found out what our role was and we would act out these parts and, and do all that kind of stuff. We also had to learn how to share the gospel in the language to where we were going. So they gave us some little cheat sheets and things like that. So I learned how to share the gospel in Spanish. But in addition to that, <clears throat> excuse me, to that, they had these really profound times of worship. They were very much from what we might call a charismatic or Pentecostal perspective. And so while the churches I grew up with taught about the Trinity, taught about the Holy Spirit, the churches that I grew up with tended to have the view that the, the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit had stopped once the Word of God was finalized, once the apostolic age kind of was put behind. And so here I was, this 15-year-old guy, sitting in this group of people in South Florida, engaged in a time of worship, when all of a sudden I hear them saying, you must speak in tongues. You must pray in tongues. You must do all these things. And I'm like, okay. And so people began making all this noise. They began talking, and it was just this cacophonous noise of stuff. I had no idea what it was. I'd never experienced I had imagined it after reading something like what we heard, what Brian read for this morning. And so people were praying and they were asking God, God, give me the gift of the Holy Spirit. Give me the gift, the ability to pray and speak in tongues. And, and everybody was kind of joining in. And because this was new for me, I was like, oh, this is awkward. I literally got down on my knees near the front of this group. I was continuing to just pray and worship and sing. And I just asked God, I said, God, is this real? And if it is real, is this, is this from you? 
And I say, God, if it's from you, is it for me? Would you want me to do this? Would you want me to participate? I mean, I'm an average teenager. I wanted to fit in with all my friends. Nobody likes sticking out like a sore thumb. Everyone else is doing it, right? And so I had this tremendous sense of peace coming over me, and it's as though I didn't hear God speak. I didn't hear God say something, but it's as though the Holy Spirit said, Joel, some of this is real, but no, this is not for you. So I finished the training. I just stood up with a sense of peace. Okay, God, I'm going to continue to worship you. I'm going to continue to honor you. We went on to Venezuela, had a very fruitful time of ministry in Caracas. We led several people to the Lord, connected them with local churches there. And from that day to this day, I have never spoken or prayed in tongues. I've been around lots of people who have, obviously, in that group. And I went with that same organization to Chile. But it was just, it was, it, was, it was something unlike I'd ever experienced before. Now, I realized that that experience was unique. And not all of us, some of you had experiences like that. Some of you, I know, grew up in churches where those sign gifts of the Spirit were the main thing. We all have different backgrounds, and, and maybe... Like me, you've grown up in in churches that believed in the Holy Spirit but didn't necessarily experience his presence that way. And so as we read Scripture, we come across references to the Holy Spirit in both the Old and New Testament. Scripture reveals a lot about how he works. And with today, part of the reason I wanted to take a break from Micah and why we're taking a break from Philippians, today is Pentecost. Today is the day that and read about. Today is the day that we would celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. And it seemed like it would be a good opportunity for us to consider at least a bit of what the Holy, who the Holy Spirit is and how he works in our lives. Now, we won't be able to dive into all that is written, certainly not even all that's written here in just the way that people. I, I tell you what, this, this week when I was looking, I had a reference book on my desk that is like 1,100 pages thick. In addition to that, I have two or three other books, and all these people are commenting on the Holy Spirit, plus the countless digital resources that are uh, thousands of pages. So we're not going to cover all of that in 30 minutes. In fact, I fear that some of you are going to walk out of here feeling like, oh, I wanted more, Joel, come on. But I want just to think a little bit and reflect on what it means for us to walk in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that mean we have to speak in tongues? Does that mean we have to do all these sign gifts? Is, it, is walking in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit a big emotionally driven time of worship? Or is it something different? And so we'll do this by really asking three questions. One is, who is the Holy Spirit? The second is, what does he do? And the third then gets practical with how do I walk with him? So if you want to follow along in your outline, let's begin with that first question. Who is the Holy Spirit? And notice the question is who and not what. Not what is the Holy Spirit, but who. And that is because the Holy Spirit, just like you and me, the Holy Spirit is a personal being. The Holy Spirit is seen throughout Scripture in a very personal and active way. He's 
not a mystical force. He's not a, divine, a vague sense of the divine. Rather, he is a personal being. He's referred to as he and not it. In fact, the night before Jesus was crucified, he told his disciples that he would send a helper and to refer to him in a personal way. If you have your Bibles open and want to look at John 14, beginning in verse 16, Jesus says this. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, or in Greek, probably a better word is an advocate, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And I think this is sometimes difficult for us to grasp because the Holy Spirit is a spirit. He doesn't have a face. He doesn't have hands. And yet he's real and he's personal. Sam Storms notes in the New City Catechism devotional that the spirit is personal in every sense of the term. He has a mind and he thinks He is capable of experiencing deep affections and feelings. The Spirit has a will and makes choices regarding what is best for God's people and what will most glorify the Son. And he's got references for all of that, and I'd be happy to give that to you later if you'd like. So if the Holy Spirit is is a person, then, then he would have some sort of personality. Now, I know some of you guys really like those personality profiles, maybe something like the DISC or, or the Enneagram. We can't necessarily give the, the, the Holy Spirit a number. Holy Spirit, where are you on the Enneagram? Where are you on DISC? But he's got a personality. John Wolvard, a, a commentator, says that, that he defines personality as containing essential elements of intellect, sensibility, and will, which means that For something to have personality or to be personal, it must exhibit each of those. And so he he goes on, John Wolver goes on to note several ways that the Holy Spirit does that. First of all, he expresses his personality in in that he has an intellect. We see this in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 11. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Those attributes of being able to search, comprehend, and knowledge all point to the presence of the Holy Spirit's intellect. But secondly, the Holy Spirit demonstrates sensibility, and we see that most clearly in that he can be grieved. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit's not emotionless. He's not a robot. He feels pain. He feels it when you and I reject what he says, when we disobey what he prompts us to do. Thirdly, we see that the Holy Spirit has a will. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 said, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills or as he chooses. And really what he's talking about there, he's talking specifically about spiritual gifts in that concept that the Holy Spirit gives or endows every believer with spiritual gifts. R.C. Sproul notes that the Spirit does things that we tend to associate with a personality. He teaches, he inspires, he guides, he leads, he grieves, he convicts of sin and more. And we'll consider all, uh, a bit of that in, in a few minutes. But I think it's important for us to understand that the Holy Spirit, this third person of the Trinity, is 
personal. And, and he is someone with whom we can interact and relate. And yet, unfortunately, as Francis Chan has so aptly uh, observed, the Holy Spirit is so often forgotten. In addition to being a personal being, the Holy Spirit is divine. The Holy Spirit is fully God. Theologians refer to him as the third person of the Trinity, fully God but distinct from the Father and the Son. In fact, consider these attributes that Scripture uses to describe the Holy Spirit that are consistent with attributes that we would see as God. For instance, omniscience. He is all-knowing. Isaiah 40, 13 says, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? He knows all things. It's not just God the Father that does that, but God the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Nothing is impossible for him. In fact, the angels encounter with Mary when Mary said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, will overshadow you, and, and, and so that the child to be born in you will be called Son of the Most High. And then he went on to say, don't forget your relative Elizabeth, who is way past childbearing years, is pregnant. For nothing is impossible with God. And it was the Holy Spirit's work in their lives that allowed those births, those pregnancies to happen. Thirdly, we see his omnipresence. Just as God is everywhere, so too his spirit is everywhere. The psalmist in Psalm 139 said, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? The Holy Spirit is also eternal. He is from before the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. The Spirit also demonstrates foreknowledge. Not only does, does he knows what, know what's happening now, but he knows all things, the end from the beginning. And it's as though God sees the timeline of history from on top of it. We, we look at it in a very linear fashion. I, I know what happened yesterday or kind of remember, and I can sort of suspect what might happen tomorrow, but he looks at everything. He looks at it from the, he sees the beginning of the world just as, as clearly as he sees today. And as clearly as he sees in 2045, as, as Zoe asked me earlier this week, what do you think is going to happen in 2040? I don't know, but the Holy Spirit does. 1 Peter 1, 11 to 12 says, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ the subsequent, and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them, referring to the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that, you, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look into. Essentially, Peter's saying, look, we know these things about Christ because the Holy Spirit told people way back there to write about something that they wouldn't understand so that you would have knowledge today about Christ being there now. The Holy Spirit has foreknowledge. We could talk about other attributes like his goodness, like his love, and, and many other things. But I hope you see that Scripture reveals that the Holy Spirit is part of the triune God. He is distinct from the Father and Son, but he is equally God. In fact, when we, when we are called, when we are commissioned to go and make disciples, Jesus told his disciples, he commands us, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Now, really, we've only scratched the surface of who the Holy Spirit is, but let's, let's think about that second question. What is it that the Holy Spirit does? What does he do? Scripture's description of what the Holy Spirit does is immense. In fact, R.C. Sproul, in a, in a really small booklet, describes his work in this way. He, he describes his work in creation, in salvation, in sanctification, in advocacy, in illumination, in anointing. All of these, he uses biblical references to help us understand how the Holy Spirit works. And that's, well, that's a well-known theologian, a guy who, who studied Scripture and looked at all these things. But let's, let's consider what Jesus said, what, how Jesus described what the Holy Spirit would do. In John 14, 26, he says, But the Helper, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And here, Jesus specifically references two things that this advocate will do. First of all, he will teach. He, he will teach. And, and I think there's a part of this teaching that was very specific to the, to the disciples. I mean, think about this. Here it is, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. He's going to die the next day. He's going to come back to life two days, three days later. And then he's going to walk with the guys for, for like a month and a half. He's going to be ascended. So now the disciples are left with three years of Jesus' teaching and a church to lead. How in the world are they? The Holy Spirit will help you. And I think we have the benefit of that when we look at all of the letters of the New Testament, the way that the Holy Spirit taught and instructed these disciples into what to write so that we would have that benefit. And sometimes people want to say that the Spirit will give them a new word or a new teaching. And, but I think it's important for us to recognize that the Spirit works within the confines of His word, His revealed word. And so the Spirit is not going to tell you to do something. He's not going to give you and me some sort of command that is contradictory to His word. And part of the challenge with several pseudo-Christian groups is that they claim to have new words or new teachings that contradict Scripture. Which is why I think we need to maintain a high view of Scripture and a full, clear understanding of the Trinity, of how the Spirit works in us. But Jesus said not only would the Holy Spirit teach, he said, secondly, the Holy Spirit will remind you and for the disciples, as they lived in this time after Jesus' ascension, the church would be expanding. They would need the Spirit to say, hey, remember when Jesus said this? Remember when you experienced that? This is how that And I think in our lives today, the Holy Spirit works in so much the same way. You see, for them, they only had hearing. They did, I, most of those guys weren't writing stuff down, so they had to just go from memory. But for us, I think it's important for us to continue to be in the word, reading on our own, reading with our families, reading in church community, so that in those moments away from that, we can, we can be in this moment, we can be in a relationship with someone, we can be in a conversation and be able to hear the Holy Spirit say, remember? Remember when I told you that? Remember when scripture says, and we get to put all those pieces together. He has... He instructs us, but he also reminds us. And then on that same night, before Jesus was crucified, he shared some additional information about the Holy Spirit. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is John 16, beginning in verse 7. 
It is to your advantage that I go, for if I do not go away, the helper, the advocate will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. And then Jesus continues to go on, and he talks for the next several verses about uh, a little bit more about the Holy Spirit. But let's think about work that he, he is referencing here. You see, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will do some convicting work. He will convict in fact, he, he, he will convict in a few different ways. First of all, he will convict in, the, in our sinful condition. R.C. Sproul shared that when he became a believer, it was through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And, I th- and what is so cool about Sproul's story is that he, in the, the Spirit used the word, but used the word in a way that we might not understand because he was also convicting Sproul. Listen to what he says. Sproul writes, I was converted to Christ through a discussion in a college dormitory one evening in 1957. As a fellow student was a Christian talking to me about things of God and quoting all kinds of things from the Bible, most of it went right over my head, and I do not remember what he said. But he began to speak about the wisdom of God. And when he did, he opened the book, opened the Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes, and he read a few verses, including this one, when he says, If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. How's that for a a good gospel message? If a tree falls in the forest, who hears it? If the tree falls, there it is. Yep. Sproul continues, he said, As I heard those words, suddenly I was overwhelmed by thinking about myself as a tree that had fallen and was lying inert, torpid, rotting, in the woods. I saw that I was in just that spiritual condition. I was a fallen tree and I would lie there forever unless God did something. That was not a misapplication of the text. I believe that God, the Holy Spirit, used that text to awaken me to saving faith. Through that text, the Holy Spirit was saying, Sproul, you're going to need God's help. And you better do something about it. You better respond or you're going to be just like that tree lying, rotting in the forest. He does that same thing for each of us. He convicts us. He helps us realize we have a sin problem. Maybe the Holy Spirit is convicting you right where you sit. Maybe he's raising an awareness of your sin through some obscure passage, just like the one he used in Sproul's life. So I want to encourage you to do what Sproul did, do what I did as a five-year-old boy and admit that you have a sin problem. Admit that you need God's saving grace through Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Come to him. And it's the Spirit's work that works in our hearts that says, hey, you've got a problem that you can't fix, but Jesus solved it. Will you come? But secondly, the Spirit also convicts of righteousness. Jesus said that because he's going to go back to the Father, he wouldn't be here in person to model righteousness for his disciples. And so the Spirit is there to help God's people walk in righteousness, to help us live out what we have in the Word. But then thirdly, the convicting work of the Spirit regarding the judgment. 
it, that reveals that there will be a definite time of judgment. Sometimes for some of us, we, we think that this world's just going to go on and on and on and on. At some point in time, God is going to come and he will judge. Hebrews tells us that it is appointed for man once to die and after that, the judgment. And so it's the Holy Spirit helping us realize the finiteness, the limitedness of our time here on earth. But in addition to the convicting work of the Spirit, Jesus discussed the guiding work. He refers to his, this as his, his guiding God's people into all truth. And this would happen in the future, and I believe this happens most when we, when we realize that human ways and God's ways are contradictory. As the Spirit guides us into God's truth, he helps us see that a soft answer turns away wrath. He helps us see that love covers a multitude of sins. He helps us see the power of forgiveness. He helps us see the way that we should treat people around us. If we were to expand our study into the Bible more about the Holy Spirit, we would see some of the ways that he gifts each believer. He gives us spiritual gifts. And we, we would see things like wisdom and mercy and hospitality and shepherding and teaching and healing and prophecy and tongues and discernment and evangelism and so much more. And these are all gifts that are designed to provide edification and growth to the church. And I believe each of us are given one, maybe more of those gifts so that we might encourage one another, so that we might make an impact in the world around us. And, and we'll look more at that at another time. And while we've considered who the Spirit is and how He works, let's conclude by asking the question, how do I walk with Him? How do I walk with Him? A couple weeks ago, when we considered Micah 6.8, we briefly read and, and thought about what it means to walk humbly with God. And I showed you that illustration of Danielle and I hand in hand. And obviously, the Holy Spirit is a spirit. We can't like... Hold his hand. We can't walk with him like we might, you might your, your boyfriend or girlfriend or your, your best friend. Or, or we, we, can't, we just can't have that kind of physical interaction. But I think that is a good metaphor for us. That concept of walking with someone, walking with God, walking with the Spirit is helpful because of the nearness it requires. But we also recognize that the Spirit is not only with us. He's not only near us. He is in us. As, as we read earlier from Ezekiel 36, 26, God said, I will give you a new heart and I will take away your spirit of stone. I will put in a spirit of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So then the question becomes, how do we walk with him? I think there's a, a few things that we need to do and one is to recognize that he is in us. As a follower of Christ, you are indwelt by the Spirit. And being Spirit, He's not limited by location and space. He's able to indwell each of us. And we're going to see that manifested a little bit differently. That gift of mercy that God might have given you is different than the gift that He might have given me. And it's exhibited beautifully together and it works to make this wonderful mosaic, this wonderful, almost like a quilt work as God is displaying his glory in the church. But I think, secondly, we need to pay attention to how he's leading. You know, just as Danielle and I might need to pay attention to 
or on a walk with each other. We might, she might want to go one way and I want to go to the other. If we're fighting against each other, it's not going to work very well. But if one of us yields, if I yield to where she wants to go, we get to continue to have this. We get to interact. But then the question becomes, how do I pay attention? He, he doesn't often speak out loud. No, he doesn't. Elijah experienced that, that soft stillness of God where, where he had to encounter where God was. He stood there and he, he, God brought before him a huge earthquake. And then he brought a great wind and fire. And finally, there was the sound of a low whisper. And that was when he could hear God speak. So I want to encourage us, and I'm talking to myself just as much as you, we need to pay attention to those soft nudges, those gentle whispers. And maybe it's going to happen when you're walking through the cafeteria at school and you see, you feel that Holy Spirit saying, why don't you go spend time with that person that you don't really like to spend time with? Or maybe it's the Holy Spirit saying, why don't you send a text to that person? Or check on how this family's doing. Or you know that person that identifies as some other gender? What if you were to just go and befriend them? Be the light of Christ to them. The Holy Spirit is going to talk. We have to pay attention. He may not give us, he may not say, hey, Joel, you need to do this. But he will nudge you. And sometimes he'll nudge you and nothing big will happen. Danielle and I, uh, I think we were talking about this this week. Every now and then I'll get these nudges. I'll see someone on the side of the road and I'll, I'll see. That. You ever have that moment when you think, I should go and help them? And then you pass by. And then, so I, I did that a couple weeks ago. I passed by somebody. I turned back around and checked on them. Hey, do you guys need any help? No, we're fine. We got all the gas we need. So I went on and did whatever I was going to. And, 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 and I think it was Danielle. She said, you know, sometimes the Holy Spirit prompts you to do those things, not so some big thing can happen, but so that he can test your obedience in that small, meaningless moment because it's not meaningless to him. So pay attention to when he prompts you. But we also have to recognize that the Holy Spirit works through suffering. And this is not the way that we C.S. Lewis said, pain insists on being attended to. When I have a splinter in my finger, I desperately want that splinter out. It has to be attended to. So God, whis- he says, God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciousness, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And we could read through the book of Job and see the way that God used suffering in Job's life to say, Job, I want you to pay attention to me. Come, pursue me, talk to me, walk with me through this. It's in our pain that God draws us to himself. He works through the still softness and suffering. But also God works in special ways. And so often this is, it's in these special ways to think, oh, there the Holy Spirit. That's when the Holy Spirit was working. And we see this throughout Scripture. We see it with the way that God used dreams and people like Pharaoh and Joseph and the prisoners in Genesis 37, 40, and 41. We see it with the way that God used dreams in the lives of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. 
We see that in the book of Acts, when in Acts 16, God gave uh, Paul a dream and said, Paul, don't go here, go there. We think, oh, God, if only I had a dream, that would be so great. Sometimes God will use those special means. The Spirit continues to use dreams to awaken people to God's work in their lives. I want to encourage you, though, not every dream is a sign from God. Sometimes it's just a sign that you ate something funny and your brain is working overtime. But sometimes the Spirit will speak in those ways. Sometimes those special ways that the Spirit works will be miracles. Maybe it'll be a healing. Maybe it'll be a divine intervention. Maybe it will be speaking in another language. On that gift of being a cessationist, cutting off, are the sign gifts done? I don't know. It seems like there is evidence that the sign gifts waned as the, as the church expanded. Does that mean God can't use what he put in his word to do something today? No, he can use anything he wants. He gave us indication of how he has worked. So I think we need to recognize, first of all, that he is in us. We need to, secondly, pay attention to how he is leading. And thirdly, we need to pray for his guidance. Con consider maybe daily praying, Holy Spirit, who would you have me interact with? Help me to be a light for your glory. Make yourself available to his leading. And then pay attention. And I think this is this is in part why at the end of the service, we've been concluding with this time of silent reflection so that each of us can sit down and say, Holy Spirit, I've heard stuff from your word. We've sung things. What is it that you want me to walk out of here doing? And I assure you, sometimes the Holy Spirit, probably most weeks, the Holy Spirit's going to say something different to you because your life is different than my life. So as we all sit in silence, we get that joy of having that same spirit saying, hey, Robin, do this. Hey, Danielle, do that. Hey, David, change this. Hey, Zach, what about that? And that same spirit is working, forming, shaping us each in his image. So today is Pentecost which was 50 days, which is what Penta refers to, 50. 50 days or seven weeks after the Feast of first fruits in the Old Testament. It was also called the Feast of Weeks. And in Hebrew, it was, it was referred to as Shavuot. And according to Jewish tradition, Shavuot was, was also a symbol. It was, a, it was a, um, a ceremony that recognized God's giving of the law on Mount Sinai. When God gave the law to Moses, it's kind of a recognition of that fiery event. In fact, there's now a mountain in Saudi Arabia that Eric has told me about that they think is Mount Sinai. It still looks like the top of it's been burned off. I'm looking forward to going there sometime. But if you remember, remember that first Pentecost, if, if that is the case, in that first Pentecost, Moses is up on the mountain, he's getting the law from God, and what happens down below? God's people have fashioned a cow out of gold and began worshiping this cow. 
And in response to that, 3,000 people lost their lives because of their rebellion. Fast forward to the Pentecost that Brian read about earlier. We didn't read the whole passage. But here, in a little room in Jerusalem, filled with all sorts of people from, speak, from every nation under heaven, as it said, there are all these people who began hearing the word of God in their language. And Peter got up and he shared a sermon and he explained exactly what was happening. And what happened at the end of that day? 3,000 people, roughly the same number that died at Mount Sinai, 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God had poured out on both. There were similarities in fire. There were similarities in drastic changes. We get the joy of walking daily with the Holy Spirit. May we walk in grateful recognition that His presence is in our lives. I don't think we should always look for those mystical sign moments because it's often in those quiet, ordinary things, those acts of obedience, the boring, dull obedience where God is glorified. Because if we need a mystical encounter around every corner, we're going to run out of corners before we start walking faithfully. Because they're going to come too few and far between. But God has given us his word, inspired by his spirit. Now he's indwelled each of us with his spirit. Pay attention. Listen and pray that God would use it, that his spirit would lead us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your spirit and your presence in our lives. Help us to walk faithfully with you each and every day. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.